Alexandra Pringle was editor-in-chief at Bloomsbury Publishing for more than two decades, having relinquished the position only recently to become executive publisher. She began her career at the British magazine Art Monthly before joining the woman's publisher Virago in 1978. She became editorial director in 1984, moved to Hamish Hamilton in 1991 to perform the same job. Through much of the 1990s, she was a literary agent for writers, including Amanda Foreman, Jeff Dyer, Maggie O'Farrell, and Allie Smith. She joined Bloomsbury in 1999 as head of the adult publishing division, where her authors included Margaret Atwood, Elizabeth Gilbert, Sheila Hancock, and Michaels, and Patchett, George Saunders, and Richard Ford. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. I want to start off with two quotes. The first quote is from Christopher Middleton, and he's commenting about uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's In the South Seas in a book called A Factotum in the Book Trade. I've just interviewed the author of that. It's a memoir of a bookseller. And what Middleton says about Stevenson's book is, so it is always on the brink and leaving something to the reader or to the listener, which is not just a secret and not just a mystery, but is the sense of being on the verge of something. And that's what I suppose resonance and suggestion are all about. And one more quote to connect with this. I picked up Joseph Campbell's the Hero with a Thousand Faces, just right after reading that. And on the first page, uh, Campbell writes about fairy tales and myths. It will always be the one shape-shifting yet marvelously constant story that we find, together with a challenging, persistent suggestion of more remaining to be experienced than will ever be known or told. My question is, how do you perceive this and how do you achieve this? I mean, I think a lot of this is instinctual um, and indeed much of what an editor's job is, is, is an instinctual job. So, it's actually very hard to pin down and to define it because the relationship between you as the reader, the editor, and the text that you're reading is very intimate and quite mysterious, I think. And when you work with an author, I always think of it as sort of climbing into the book with the author, particularly if it's fiction. I, I personally often don't even know what I'm going to say to the writer until I start saying it. So I'm not, I'm not one of those editors that prepares everything beforehand. I have it all swilling around in the back of my head and then I allow it to come forward and I'm often quite sort of stumbling at the beginning of the conversation and I prefer 
to edit through conversation than on the page. So I think that that sense of there being more is something that you do with your fingertips and you understand with your fingertips. And I think the reason why we read is because we want to discover things. And a lot of, and I'm talking, I think, particularly actually about fiction, that you want to go into worlds that you don't personally know. I mean, having said that, you also want to examine the world that you know, but much of the experience, like Robert Louis Stevenson, a Kipling, or when I was 11 or 12 and reading A Chabie's Things Fall Apart, that extraordinary experience of walking into a completely different world. Nothing is explained really in good novels, is it? You are you're whispered at a lot of the time. You are, you are given characters and you're given places and you're given stories, but what you make of them is, is the work that you do as the reader. The fundamental question is what keeps you reading? And, you know, as an editor, this is the sense that you want is that when you pick it up, you want to keep reading? Of course you do. But there are various strands to that. One is the quality of the prose. So sentence by sentence and word by word. Is the prose working for you? Is it lighting you up? Or sometimes the best prose is the prose that sits back and doesn't display itself, but is so adept. And I think that's often the hardest, the hardest prose to achieve. And I remember when I published years ago, Esther Freud's first novel, Hideous Kinky, it was written with such a lightness of touch because it would be very easy not to see how much art went into it. And I was quite frightened when we published it that I was at Hamish Hamilton at the time, that that wouldn't be perceived. But there was a review by Gabrielle Annan in the TLS that said it has the art that conceals art. And I thought, that's, that's great. We're home and dry. That's exactly what it is. So there are many different, there are different, there are so many different styles of writing, but the, the prose is one of them. And then, of course, the story and the depth of the characters are the other things. So there are three strands, really. And sometimes when you read a first draft, one aspect is working very well and a, a couple aren't. I mean, I tend not to write, not to work with writers where I have to spend a great deal of time on the prose because I only publish them because I love their prose. So if they run into difficulties, it's usually, on, it's usually a more structural affair that I'm engaged in. Okay, I, I want to get into uh, a, a narrative arc in our, in our interview here. But first of all, I have, I've done some research. Uh, I approached a prominent Bloomsbury author and I asked her to give me the goods on you. And what you're she, trying to scare me, aren't you? <laughs> and what she what she said was to be sure to ask about the parents and the houseboat. So let's start with the houseboat. Okay. What do you want to know about the houseboat? Well, you live on one, right? I do, yes. So why do you live on a houseboat? Well, the short answer is that I fell in love with somebody who was living on the houseboat. 
The long answer is that I grew up around here in Chelsea. And when I was a little girl, I used to go for walks along by the river. And I used to look at the houseboats and think, oh, they are so romantic. I wonder who lives on them. I wonder what it's like being on them. And I had a great friend who lived in a house on Cheney Walk looking over the boats. And we used to we used to sketch them. His mother was an artist and his father an architectural historian. And we used to stand on the balcony and, uh, and, and sketch them and paint them. So they were very much part of my imagination. So <laughs> when I moved onto the boat, in fact, it was Esther Freud said to me, oh, Alexandra, you've fallen in love with a man and a boat. <laughs> you know, that's so funny because my grandmother she fell for someone who had a houseboat and she bought the houseboat. I don't exactly know what happened, but it ended up that she got taken to the cleaners and he took off. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that didn't happen to you. Well, that didn't happen to me, but unfortunately the people who own the boatyard are taking us to the cleaners. So this could have a very sticky and sad end. And what is awful is this week, the wonderful Egyptian novelist, Adaf Suef, who I went to stay with on her beautiful houseboat on the Nile in Cairo. I mean, I had really bad houseboat envy. The Egyptian government has towed them all away. Why is that? Because they want to develop and make money out of the site. And it's an old bohemian community, just like ours in Chelsea. So Adaf has left, lost her home. She's lost everything. Absolutely tragic. And who knows what's going to happen with ours. But we're like the last bit of old Chelsea. It's like the Chelsea I remember from my childhood is this bit. So it's particularly precious to me. It's untrammeled capitalism. That's the mm. problem. Mm. Really? Mm. I mean, why do we live together in, in, you know, in cities? It's to cultivate places like you have. I know. But I think that all that we can do is appreciate every day of living here and get every bit of joy out of it. And then whatever will happen will happen. Okay. Well, could you tell me about your father, please? My father? My father, so the name Pringle is Scottish. So he was Scottish but he was actually born in England because his father was a liberal MP. And my father was a late child, so he had an old father. And his father actually died of a heart attack when my father was 10. But he was a liberal MP and he was a great friend of Asquith and supporter of Asquith and an enemy of Lloyd George. And he was a wee free liberal and he was known for being very disruptive and difficult in the House of Commons. And in fact, there was a verb invented called Pringle, which meant to create a rumpus. Um, and G.K. Chesterton wrote a poem that goes like this. How I love humanity that is so fair and pringlish and how I hate the horrid French who never will be English. <laughs> Couldn't say that today, could you? No, you couldn't. Yeah, so, so he was brought up in this political household, but my father was actually very, he was a socialist. He was a communist before the war. 
and he was a socialist and he was a teacher. So he had other ambitions. He had an ambition to be a barrister as his father had been. And he got his exams, but couldn't afford the pupillage because he got married and had a baby and all the rest of it. And then he, what he really wanted most of all was to be a member of parliament. And he was always a Labour councillor all his life, but he stood for parliament twice for the Labour Party. And his constituency was Westminster, which is the safest Tory seat <laughs> probably in the world. Um, we had so much fun. We did things like he was the first person ever to canvas the servants' quarters of Buckingham Palace. He got the front page of the Times for doing that. And he doubled... The Labour vote, it was the second time he stood was when Harold Wilson first got in in the 60s. And then my father had a heart attack, this great history of my family of heart attacks. And so he gave up politics and continued as an English teacher. And he was a wonderful teacher, I think. And of course, that was very important in my development. Because the conversations he and I had about books and the books that he gave me from when I was growing up. Um, for example, he gave me Jane Austen and Thomas Hardy to read when I was 11. So I was lucky. And uh, he was very keen on T.S. Eliot. And he and my parents met just after the war. And my mother was also a teacher. Was your father disappointed in his life or not? I think he was professionally disappointed. He was an extraordinary father and family person. And he was, a, a, I think, a really wonderful teacher, but it's not just me. I, was, I took my parents when they were very old, they were in their 80s, to the Groucho Club for lunch. And a completely strange man came up and said, are you Mr. Pringle? And he said, yes. And he said, you won't remember me, but you taught me at Westminster City School. And I had recently come from Russia. My name is Anatol Koletsky. And I became a writer because of you. You changed my life, and thank you. You know, that's exactly what authors love to hear, which is, your book changed my life. Mm. And also, you know, for my father, there was quite a lot of management of my mother, because she was a very complicated and dramatic person who took up a lot of emotional space in the house. So he was a very gentle person who stepped back, very nurturing, very gentle. So you didn't lack for love then? No, not at all. Not from, not from my father or my mother, although the love for my mother was very complicated and certainly became complicated. But she came from a very complicated background. Her parents, her family were Berber Moroccan Jews. They came from the Ephraim. They were very ancient, pre-Babylonian Berber Jews. And they were traders. They had caravans that went from Timbuktu to Mogador, as it then was, as we are now, with ostrich feathers and gum Arabic and spices and so on. And then when my mother was small, her father, my grandfather, imported... Um, uh, indigo from Pondicherry and cotton from Manchester for the cloth for the blue men for the Tuareg. And then it went bankrupt, probably because he was useless at business, but the war didn't help. And he used to he used to train Arab horses and sell them to the French army. So she was brought up partly in Morocco and partly in Britain. And the family left 
they were they had a conversation when the war broke out about whether to stick out the war in Morocco or go to England. And my mother and her brother desperately wanted to go to England. She was a teenager. And they got the last boat out. And my mother hated her family. And the minute she could, she joined the ATS, the Women's Army. She was 17 and she became a driver. And her whole life changed. And she never forgave her father for not educating her. He made her leave school when she was 16. But she got to go to art school after the war because the government gave grants to people who'd done war service. And she, um, she got into Goldsmiths and she met my father through the poet Tambi Mutu, the Salonese poet, and also a poet called Peter Russell, who my father shared a flat with. And Peter Russell had been in love with my mother during the war. They met and uh, he, in a jealous fury, when they got married, kicked over and destroyed their only wedding present, which was a coffee pot. <laughs> anyway, they used to, there was, they were part of that sort of post-war bohemian poetry, French poem society. But when they got married, they, they removed themselves from that. So what happened to Peter Russell? Did he just uh, marry someone else or, or was he in love with her for the rest of his life or no, what? No, 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 no. I think he was in love with a lot of people. I think he uh, married a Canadian woman at some point. He was bisexual. Right. Um, I once saw him when he was in Venice in a misty night and the person, the friend I was with, knew him a bit because he lived in Venice for years and this man stumbled over this bridge in the fog and my friend said that's Peter Russell. <laughs> Peter Russell was a, an acolyte of Ezra Pound. Well who wasn't? <laughs> really he had such a network didn't he? Okay so you had a very interesting childhood then obviously. It, it wasn't it wasn't one of those childhoods full of exciting and disturbing things. It was quite a regular childhood, but we were in Chelsea, which was amazing because my parents rented a tiny Regency cottage off the King's Road, which had no bathroom when we moved in. And it had a lavatory in a shed in the yard. And it was a completely working class street. And, you know, that was in the 50s. And then Mary Quant opened Bazaar. My mother had been at art school with her. And we used to stand on the street corner and chat to her. And I watched the 60s happen and the hippies then and then punk. And I was too young, sadly, to be involved uh, in it. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is that you're, it sounds like your parents had it interesting you know circle of friends and so you would have yes you would have gotten to know at least some of them right yes absolutely I was very very lucky and in fact the people who had the house on Cheney Walk um, he was called J.M. Richards and he wrote a very famous book called The Making of Modern Architecture and he was editor of the Architectural Review and his wife Kit was a painter and they took me because I was like the surrogate sister to their son Alexander tragically died when he was 16 and I was 18 but until then they used to take me with them on holiday and for example I went to stay with Lee Miller and Roland Penrose when I was 11 so that was pretty extraordinary weekend and yeah. I remember it so well yeah I would say it probably clearly influenced you in your decision of 
to where to where to head in terms of work. Yes, definitely. That job at, at the art magazine sounds like fun. Oh, it was the best fun. It was the absolute best fun. I went to after I, I failed to get into university because I was so bad at my schoolwork and I was basically reading novels the whole time instead of working. And so I went to a tech in Cambridge, technical post. And after I'd graduated, I went to live in Italy and was taught English for a year. Then I came back and I sort of thought I want to work in publishing in that way that you do, you know. Actually, what had happened was my last months at Cambridge Tech, one of my English tutors, who was a friend of Peter Russell's, I mean, this is how strange life is, started a poetry festival in Cambridge and I got involved in it. And it was then that I thought, I want to work with writers. And it was electrifying. I mean, our writers, they were poets like the amazing Robert Duncan, Robert Creeley, Ted Hughes, they came from all over the world to, to this week in Cambridge. And I just thought, this is the life. This is what I want. So I was thinking of not particularly of poetry. In fact, my older brother said to me, perhaps you have a talent for poetry. And I said, no, I have a talent for poets. <laughs> <laughs> Without thinking, but you know what, there was something there. Poets are, uh, poets are dangerous. I know, that's why I love them. It was so exciting, you know. And all the fighting and the drinking, and I just thought, this is the life I want. It's the life I want. And so I was sort of looking in a rather hopeless kind of way for a job, and I didn't know how to do that, so looking in the Times for <laughs> advertisements. But one day I wandered into an art gallery uh, to see a woman who had worked in HR in the, at the tech that I did, just to say hello. And I said, I'm looking for a job in publishing. And she said, oh, there's this man who's starting this new magazine and he's looking for an assistant. And so I rang him immediately and went to have my interview in the Museum Tavern in a pub. And there were a lot of artists there and he hired me. And it was five pounds a week for five mornings a week. And I had to teach English to keep myself going. I lived in a room in Whitechapel with mice and rats and a Bangladeshi sweatshop underneath me and I shared a lavatory with the whole house and had no bathroom. There's a no bathroom <laughs> theme that goes through my life. I used to wash in a bucket. Uh, but the magazine was, I loved the editor. He was called Peter Townsend. He'd lived in China for years. He had been editor of Studio International. He knew all the artists of the time. And we used to sit in this pub, the Clown Museum Street, and artists from all over the world would come to see him and he'd take me to private views and I just had a I had a ball but then I did something very stupid which was I married an artist <laughs> I've been married three times <laughs> so, okay wait a minute you didn't marry a poet you married an artist yes and that's just as bad right yeah absolutely yeah. and how long did that last for two years uh, but in the course of that, I realized that I would have to earn money because he sure wasn't going to. Yeah, it's definitely like he's not a banker. No, no, no. I, I, I look back on my life and I, I'm, <laughs> I'm quite astonished by the fact that I somehow never, ever hooked myself up with anyone remotely rich. Well, you did it yourself, though, didn't you? 
I've always had to do everything myself. Uh, okay, so so did you edit when you were with the magazine? Well, I was editorial assistant, and so I had to do, obviously, there were just three of us. There was the man who owned the magazine, Jack Wendler. There was the editor, Peter Townsend, and me. And Jack's wife used to do some work and advertising. So I used to have to, you know, print out the address labels, take the copies to the galleries to sell, roll up the subscriptions and post them. But Peter was such a wonderful mentor. He got me editing pieces and then doing little bits of writing for what was the art notes section. Um, and so I did learn a great deal in that time. And I would have stayed on for much longer because I was so happy. But the five pounds a week was a bit of a problem. <laughs> okay, so what, what specifically did you learn? I learned how a magazine is put together not something that I obviously use in my life now, but it was extremely interesting and useful. I learned how to work with writers. And I think that's, that's a very, very important skill. Okay, so how do you work with writers? You're very nice to them on the whole. <laughs> you, you're very nice to them and what? Yeah, on the whole, you're very on the nice whole, to them. Yes. You look after them. Yes. Naturally. Well, they want to be catered to. Yeah, yeah, of course they do. And there is this writer, Peter Fuller, who became very famous and he used to come to finish his copy and he always had a cold and was miserable and used to sit over the typewriter. And much of my job was just to like make him feel happier while he was doing that. <laughs> well, I mean, you want to try and get the best out of them. So, so how do you do that? I think that that is a huge mixture of building of confidence, which I think is really important, but also knowing how to lead them in different directions. And one of the things that I've learned, and I've not, and I've made the mistake of not doing that, is that if you don't temper your criticism with good things, you get into trouble. And there have been times where I felt that I've worked with a writer for so long that our relationship is so robust, I can go straight into the kill and I'm pretty much always wrong. Wrong? Yeah, to do that. You can't really, for example, you can't really call someone's wife ugly. Exactly, or their child an idiot or whatever. No, exactly. So being respectful of the work is important and appreciative of it. And of course, every writer is different and there's some that you can be more robust with. And it helps if they've got a very good sense of humor. You can do it through humor. Because if you can tease someone, then it's a great help. And I was brought up with a mother who teased and I like being teased, so I'm happy to be teased back. Yeah, that's so important. Not to take yourself too seriously. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about your role to, and I'm just going to riff off a few things here, uh, activities or that sort of thing. So, for example, convincing the author to believe in their own vision and voice. Is that important? Yes, I think that's incredibly important. And that's what I mean when I say confidence, building of confidence. 
Okay. So in other words, what? What they've got to say is worth saying or what are you yeah. going to tell them? What, what they're saying is worth saying and also a lot of how they're doing it is, is worth it, but that to make the book realize itself that work, more work needs to be done and to be able to, in an ideal world, suggest possibilities. And I think of editing as a conversation. And so it is never an editor telling an author what they should do or how they should do it. No. It's, it's about talking possibilities and lots of what if. So what if, and sometimes they're quite dramatic things. What if you kill off this character? Mm. What if you change the tense of, of the book? Yeah. Uh, what if you change the point of view and you go from the third person to the first person or vice versa? all of those things that can make an enormous difference. It's that strange thing with a, with a book when you read a draft and it's not yet lifted off the ground. And I think when it's, when it's working, it levitates, literally takes off. What does that mean? It means it sings, it has life, it, it has breath. And again, the, the way you recognize that is through some kind of instinct? Yeah. You just know it. Yeah. And it's like when you read something absolutely wonderful, the hairs on your arms stand up. Yes. And your, you know, your breathing changes slightly. Okay, so that's why they hire you for the hair that stands up on your arm. <laughs> Luckily, it's not too thick. Right. But I mean, your hair stands up at the right at the right book. I mean, that's the question, right? It's that everyone, lots of people's hair stands up, but it's got to stand up for the right thing. Well, you know, how do you know? I mean, it, it, all of pu publishing has for centuries, but my God, at the moment, likes to feel that it knows how to, yeah. how to do things. And the point is, you know, yeah. we don't know what we're doing. We None don't. of us know. Yeah. And some people have a bit more luck than others. And that's really what it is. And yeah. the weird thing in my life is that probably the greatest successes, literally in terms of sales, have, have happened. It's happened completely on its own. The books have done it on their own. Yes, yes. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You've got to, yeah, I suppose, you know, you get word of mouth going, but if the book isn't any good, it's not going to take off. No. And a publisher can fling enormous sums of money at a book. It yeah. doesn't mean people are going to buy it. It'll help, but it's not going to make it happen. Okay, so uh, what's the difference between the magazine editing and uh, book editing? Well, it's the long haul book. That's it, eh? Yeah, it's a very long haul, and it's a more intimate process, a less cerebral process, I think. So it seems to me then, you know, there's, there's these three different areas. There's the emotion, emotional area that you're working on. There's the craft area. And then there's a, and then there's the business area, right? Yeah. Can you, can you hit the most important things in each one of those? So there's the emotional, there's the craft, and there's the business. There isn't one thing. You, you don't you don't think that there's a hierarchy? Oh, well, I think everybody would have different ones. I would say, but that's just because I 
who I am. So maybe emotional craft. And the business side is incredibly important. But I really think it's about balancing all of it. But for me, what I personally care about, it's like I care about the authors more than I care about the publishing industry. I'm not much interested in the publishing industry. My friends are my authors. They're not other publishers or agents. Right, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, why did I, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's for this kind of, it's a fun, educational, but it's like, it's, it's a connection. It's a conversation. Is that what you were after when you went into the book publishing business and the editing is that you craved close communication with smart people who love the same sort of thing you did? Yes, I think so. Yes. And then I learned all sorts of things like to love the process of publishing a book and how you can, as an editor, be a sort of magician with a book. It was actually Carmen Khalil that taught me because she, she started doing publicity before she became a publisher. This is Virago, right? Yes. Where, where you went after... Uh... Art Monthly. Yes. yes. The, the editor has to be responsible for every single bit of the book. So it's also the visual side of it, how it looks but also how to get it out into the world. And I remember when I was at Virago, the first first novel I ever published was Lucy Elman's Sweet Desserts. And learning how to get quotes from authors. And then I remember one day the books had just come in and I was having lunch with Clive James and I brought him a copy and said, I love this book and so on, and gave it to him. And he chose it as his book of the year in The Observer. And I thought, ah, that's magic. You know, and then his quote went on the front of the paperback. So learning all of those things, which is about connections and about bringing people together. And I love that side of it. In a way, it's like a giant party. <laughs> well, yes, uh, that is interesting, isn't it? It's like when you think of an editor, you know, basically, it seems to me, the role is, is very much that you said it's everything. It's like each editor, at least when you get to a certain level, is a publisher. Definitely, definitely. I think of it as, I think the really good editors are publishers who have a 360 degree angle on, on every book, that they're, they, they put their fingers on every single bit. Right. That you don't just edit it, send it off to press and step back. You step way forward at that point. And you have to champion your books and you have to, you have to work for them. You have to like wake up in the middle of the night and think, oh, I should send this book to so-and-so. And it's so much about that. I always, whenever I've gone to a party, any kind of gathering, felt that I wanted to talk to one or two or three people about particular books and then send them afterwards. So you're kind of like working it all the time. Right. What you want to do is sort of keep keep pushing. Like it's a bit like a like an old car. You know, you've got the lovely car, but you have to push it to get it to start going, and then it goes on its own. Yeah. And the way you push it is just to talk to as many people about it as you can. Yeah, and send it. And when I get proofs in, I get so many of them, and I send them out to like. 50, 60, 80 people, often with handwritten cards or letters. The proofs? Yeah. 
And you're hoping they'll give you feedback? Yeah, or that they'll just talk about it. And nowadays, of course, post it on social media. You know, give a quote or just, it's just part of the life of the book is getting people aware of it because every book needs as much help as it can get. Well, and it's sometimes, you know, sometimes you'll send a book out just because you think somebody would like to read it. And then you're really surprised. I published an astonishing novel about D.H. Lawrence called Tenderness. And I sent it to amongst many other people. I sent it to Elizabeth Gilbert, who I knew was writing and not really reading, but I just wanted her to have it. And I got this incredible email from her. She had fallen passionately in love with it. And you just think, isn't this the best? <laughs> Well, and why is that the best? It's because you think it's great and someone agrees with you? Well, you want people to love your books. It's like you want them to love your children, don't you? Yeah. And if it's also people who you respect and admire, and that's very special. I mean, there is a sense of validation there too. Yes. Because until it's published, you don't know what other people are going to think. So there's a bit of you that's scared and a bit of you that thinks, am I the emperor in my new clothes? Right. And so there, there, there is absolutely that. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I was speaking with this, the, the head of this program I, I was telling you about in Prague. And he had writ he's written a piece on his first book and how he couldn't keep his hands off it, you know, and how it truly is, uh, again, depending on the person, psychologically validating as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, particularly with the first book, that's really in the unknown. Yeah. I'm concerned about our, I know you're ha holding it up there, but it's... Uh, it's still bad, is it? Yeah, it's really not good. But uh, you know what I might have to do is I might have to come over on and visit you on your houseboat. Okay. You'd be very welcome. <laughs> you, end, you, you land at, uh, if that's a way of putting it, uh, at Bloomsbury in 1999. Was that, uh, was that right around Harry Potter time? Yes, it was. It was the first one had been published and the second one was soon to be published. So it was, it was a lot of excitement, but it was before it went insane. It was all taking off at that moment. And you didn't have anything to do with that then? No, because that was the children's division. Yes, I was thinking about that. Although it's, it's you know, I mean, of course, it, lots of adults read like myself read all of them to our daughters and kids you know and there also I think is a surprising number of adults who actually read it on their own right yes in fact we did publish adult editions yes and that obviously must have been a huge part of Bloomsbury's success yes yes it was absolutely extraordinary Yes, um, but it was also frightening in a way um, because we knew it was going to come to an end. I mean, not that it's finished. Of course, it hasn't because Harry Potter continues to be incredibly important. But there would be when we got to the end of the series, um, that was a very critical time for Bloomsbury. 
but yes. partly because we're a PLC, we're a publicly owned company, and so we have to grow every year. Yes, that's terrible. You have to grow every year. Mm. That's I think that's bullshit. Mm. Really, how it is? Yeah, it's capitalism. I clearly sympathize with your father's political views. <laughs> okay, so. Uh, at Bloomsbury, and let's just continue a bit with Harry Potter. What role did the the agent play versus? I know you didn't get into it right away, but I'm sure it's part of what you your, your work. And I know you must be sick of talking about it, but the role that the agent played with with Rowling and the role that the publisher played. What, how did how does that sort of shake out? Well, the agent had the foreign rights, so obviously the agent was was in control of that and in control of doing the deals with us for future books. That was really what the it was a business relationship. Yes, someone at the the company was the editor or what? Yeah, yes, somebody in the company, the editor who originally bought Harry Potter, left to start his own imprint. But there was a young woman there who was Joe Rowling's editor at Bloomsbury, and she was her editor through the whole series. I see. And what's her name? Emma. I can't remember her second name. <laughs> she left some years ago. Okay, okay. Sorry, I just can't remember. It'll come no, back no. to me. So how did you climb the, like, how did you succeed in that company? At Bloomsbury? Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, how, yeah. what, what explains your rise to the top? Well, I came in at the top. You know, they, I was hired to take over from Liz Calder as editor-in-chief. That's true. So it wasn't that I had done all my, all my rising, <laughs> so <laughs> to speak. Okay. In the years before. Okay, so I okay. Came... Well, let, let, me, let me wind that back then. Okay. How, about all that rising then, like, how come you did all that rising? I, I find it very amusing nowadays that young women, because it's mainly women who work in publishing, um, come in and ask about their career plans, right. their career paths, because I've never, ever thought about a career or a plan or a path. So right. I, I just, like, stumbled through I'm really just doing kind of what felt right or what happened to me. So, so obviously I had to leave Art Monthly because I had to earn money because I was poor. And so I went to earn a minuscule amount of money at Virago. Yeah. And I found that I went part-time for three years there because I found it very difficult working for Carmen Khalil. And um, I went back to university part-time. So, you know, it was a mess really. And then when I was... Darty, I went back full time and took over the classic series, um, running it, although Carmen still worked on it. And that was very much my heartland with the books that my mother had given me to read as a child. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. That must have been very satisfying getting these women back into print. It was wonderful. It was yeah. wonderful. And in a way, my experience on Art Monthly was very useful for the commissioning of the new introductions and working with the authors on on those 
And then I started commissioning new books. But I was at Virago for 12 years and I had very little confidence and I certainly didn't feel that I was employable anywhere else for a long time, long time. And it was really in my late 30s. And by that time, I was part of the management team, mainly because I was the fourth person to join. But I joined as what was called the the shit worker really is what we called it and and sort of learned everything there and ended up as editorial directors it was a long hard process and I'm a tortoise you know there are tortoises and hares in the world and I'm a complete tortoise and I never had a feeling that I had a burning need for a great career but by the time I was in my mid-30s I thought if I don't leave for Algar I'll spend the rest of my life here and that is not a good thing for a human being and I was offered the job at Hamish Hamilton. So that just happened to me. And it happened to me at a very difficult time in Virago's history. And it was a perfect exit. And it was a perfect list for me. So I felt very lucky. So I went to Hamish Hamilton. But within four years, within three years, I knew that corporate life did not suit me. It just was not me. And so that was why I bailed out to become an agent. And that was because I had lunch with this agent who said he was looking for someone. So I said, what about me? So do you see what I mean? There, there was no plan. There was no plan. Um, and what I always did have was this very strong sense of the books I loved and what I wanted to do with them, the authors that I loved. And then yet another lunch I have with Liz Porter. She says she's looking for someone to take over from her when she retires. And would I think about it? But I took four months because I knew it was the most important decision of my life. I didn't really know why it didn't take four minutes because it was so obvious. But I felt I felt really responsible to my authors, who some of whom had followed me from Virago to Hamish Hamilton to Agenting. And it's very disruptive and difficult for authors to have those upheavals in their lives. But then I thought I had to do it. So that was how I ended up at, at Lindsay. And everything is just it's the accumulated experience of years, isn't it? Just learn as you go along. Okay, just just winding down here. Then it it seems to me that yours what you're saying is that you've got a an instinct or a taste or something that that you're able to to, to determine something that's both good and and viable economically. Not always. Many of my books don't work, as with every editor. Okay, okay, that's true, yes, because it's certainly not batting a thousand percent. In, or, in order to, 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 to succeed in the way you have, you must have a better batting average than normal. I mean, they must have, you know, you have to be seen as someone who can make the, the company money. Yes, I guess so. I imagine so. I hope so. Um, but I think a lot of, I, in fact, I gave a speech about this recently that, that editors need confidence and they need people to trust their taste. And it all comes from there. The rest happens from there. And I've just have been very lucky in that I've, I sometimes fall violently in love with a book like The Song of Achilles by Madeleine Miller. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, or Eat, Pray, Love. And those are just these weird experiences and it's like falling in love, you know. But if you have the kind of strength of mind 
and confidence to follow that, and sometimes to even go against colleagues to do that, then you can have wonderful rewards. But for every book that works, there are dozens that you read for really beautiful, wonderful books that people ignore. So yes, it's, it's interesting, this dichotomy between you know, you have to think that, the same with for an author, you have to think you're better than everyone else. <laughs> but on the other hand, you, you know, you're racked by self-doubt. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting dichotomy, isn't it? Yes. And if you aren't able to argue your case with the rest of the people in the company, then you, you're not going to, like, is that it? Is it how passionate your argument is or how solid it is compared to other people's and then it's your track record or what well sometimes a company of its own accord just falls in love with something as well and that's great and sometimes they don't so everybody at Bloomsbury fell in love with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell and nobody at Bloomsbury fell in love with Eat Pray Love and it took four years for that book to work and it sure wasn't anything we did <laughs> you know but I when I banged on about it, I was like bored for England on it because I felt so strongly about it. It's it's weird, you know. So sometimes it all, all comes together beautifully and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes the company can all love a book and do everything right and do it beautifully and it still doesn't work. Okay, well, um, I'm not sure how beautifully this has come together, Alexandra, because of the freaking technology. But let me uh, let me give it a uh, let me give it an edit, and hopefully it'll turn out. So so it's not the houseboat. Is that what you're trying to say? No, it's definitely the houseboat is innocent. <laughs> well, just to just to wind down, then finally, have you said everything? Like, have you divulged all of your secrets? To me, or are, there, are you keeping some, you know, aside that no sane human being ever divulges all their secrets. Okay, well, we'll save that maybe for the time I come and visit you on your houseboat. How's that? All right. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate the time you've spent with me, and thanks very much. Okay. Hope it's going to be okay. Sorry. Yes. Okay. All right. Bye. Good to meet you. Likewise. Bye bye. Bye bye.